Welcome to Conversations Live. For more than a decade, we've brought you the best in books, entertainment, celebrity interviews, and current events. When the movers and shakers of the world have something to say to you, they say it to us first. Here's your host, Cyrus Webb. Welcome back, everyone, to Conversations Live. I'm your host, Cyrus Webb. Glad you all could join us once again. But for our radio audience tuning in here in Mississippi at WYAD 94.1 FM and WYADonline.com, we're glad that you all can be with us. Also, tuning in online worldwide, thanks to our podcast. We're glad you all could be with us as well. I'm excited to welcome author Tanya Maria Golash-Bosa to our program today. She's author of an interesting book that deals with a topic you may have heard about, but it definitely makes it more personal in the way she's able to look at what's happening, particularly in Washington, D.C. The book is called Before Gentrification, the Creation of D.C.'s Racial Wealth Gap. When talk to Tanya not only about the writing of this book, but the research she's been able to do when it comes to D.C., but also the impact that it has on us, of course, as a country as well when it comes to this topic of gentrification. If you guys are just now hearing about the book, we will let you know how to get your own copy of it, as well as stay connected with Tanya. Tanya, thank you again for the time. really do appreciate it. Thank you, Cyrus. It's great to be here. Uh, the pleasure is definitely all mine. So, Tanya, this is an interesting thing, as I told you before we went live here. I'm on the radio side here in Mississippi. But I think what I learned about this book, especially as we're talking about this topic, is that even though you are focusing on Washington, D.C., we do see the impact that gentrification has had literally around this country, right? But you're just able to give these real-world examples there in D.C. So what has it been like for you to see how this conversation is kind of happening, not only about what you talk about in D.C., but also around the United States? Thank you. One thing I think about when thinking about gentrification more broadly, and gentrification really just means the gentry, the middle class people moving into a neighborhood and causing um, prices to increase. But we've seen this happen all across the United States where cities are becoming unaffordable for workers. And the issue with that is that um, the c- cities need workers. Like no matter what city you need in, you need people to fix potholes. You need people to build sewage lines, to fix sewage lines. You need people to drive buses, to drive taxis. And if those people can't afford to live in the city, it creates a real problem for the city. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is something that is so interesting. And especially what I thought about, Tanya, when I was reading your book, is that there's been a lot of talk, of course, about – you know, Washington, D.C., you know, getting certain rights, right? And I think a lot of times we don't think about the importance of what what is being asked for, but also, of course, the pushback that kind of has been there. When I'm reading this book before gentrification, it was interesting to kind of think about how not only Washington, D.C. has has kind of evolved, but also, of course, the impact, of course, that's having on us today. What was that like for you to look at the history and kind of think about where we are now in 2023? I mean, I, I think what you're asking about is voting rights. So mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. was formed, you know, as a federal city, and it was decided when it was formed that, you know, that the residents wouldn't have a, a, a representative in Congress, um, that it wouldn't have a full – it wouldn't really need a full governing body because it wasn't – you know, it was just kind of the seat of the federal government. But over time, Washington, D.C. has become a huge metropolis. Um, it actually reached a peak of 800,000 residents in 1950. And today we have about 700,000 residents. So that's 700,000 people living in the nation's capital who don't have a voting representative in Congress. Um, also, we we do have a city council and a mayor, but any bill that they pass has to be approved by Congress. So recently, um, Washington, D.C. tried to pass some laws that would adjust our um, our crime laws. 
and Congress, you know, de- declined to pass those. We also have a control board that controls our finances. So the locally elected officials um, are not able to have local control over the government, right, to make decisions, to make budgetary decisions. I mean, they can make those decisions, but then there's always there's this extra layer of approval. And the one thing about the way that works in D.C., first of all, D.C. has, you know, between 1970 and up until recently was a majority black city. Now it's about 40 to 45 percent black. But it is and has been long been a majority democratic city. So what happens is we have a, another body that doesn't represent the city in that, insofar as that other body is not majority black and not um, almost exclusively democratic like the city making decisions on behalf of residents. Yeah. I think that's it. And and along with the topic of gentrification, as you discuss in the book, it kind of gets into the subtitle. The other thing that sticks out to me, and a word that comes up a lot in your book, and that is disinvestment. I want to talk about that because that is a big part of this conversation as well as we're talking about the community and the impact and the rights of individuals. Did you automatically see that correlation in the beginning, Tanya, or was that something that as you were – Looking at this history, seeing these examples, you kind of realize how they were tied together. Yeah, I think one thing about a sociology book is when you, at the end, you put it all together and people are like, oh, yeah, that's what happened. But it's not, it, it takes the sociologist to kind of to see it. So, no, I didn't see it in the beginning, but it, it sort of slowly came together. And one thing, I mean, I'm from Washington, D.C., and I've been, I'm interested in history, but I did not know the extent of all of this history until I um, really did this research. One thing, I mean, but the disinvestment and the dispossession of black communities goes back um, far. So, first of all, in the in the aftermath of slavery, um, there were many free black communities formed in D.C. And over and over again, you see these communities just being um, taken over by the government. So, for example, there was um, a city, a, a town, or like a neighborhood, really, called Reno City, um, on the west side of the park in Washington, D.C. And that neighborhood was formed by people who had been manumitted, um, who had previously been enslaved, and they formed this small community in the early 20th century. They had a school, and that community was majority black. But there was this development company called the Chevy Chase Land Company that really wanted that neighborhood, which is called Chevy Chase, to be um, exclusively white and to be upper income. So they started putting, um, building, you know, land, building housing developments putting covenants in the deeds that would say this home shall not be sold to a Negro or to a person of the colored race. That was the language that they used at the time. They also would put covenants in the deeds that say, you know, this home has to be a certain number of square feet and a certain kind of lot. I mean, they really were trying to build an exclusively white and upper income neighborhood. So the Chevy Chase Land Company really did not like the fact that there was this um, working class, primarily African-American settlement in that neighborhood so they pressured um, the city and the federal government to to eradicate that community, and it, it did take them a, a, a while, but they were successful in um, making the case that Chevy Chase needed a school and a park and that the only place they could build it was in this place called Fort Reno. So they demolished um, the city, and I went to school right there in um, the school, um, Alice Steele Junior High, and then the school when I went there was called Woodrow Wilson, but now it's called Jackson Reed. And that school and that junior high and that high school and the park in between them were all built right on top of this African-American community. And I, I never knew that growing up. But that's just one example of the dispossession of black communities. And we see it happening over and over again in the city in the early 20th century. 
And I think it's, it's a topic, again, as we're having this conversation, Tanya, that people will think of even, you know, as you give these horrible examples of individuals who were, lost their property and, you know, these kind of people feeling as though they, they could be able, just because of um, the way that things were set up, being able to take things that, you know, had nothing to do with the crimes, actually, that were, you know, the, the individuals were being charged with, I think really is interesting. But I think it goes to something larger, too. As we kind of look at 2023, when I, when I was reading this book, I couldn't um, help but think about something that's been in the news this year with Josephine Wright in South Carolina, the woman who mm-hmm. is, you know, in, in danger of losing her land because this developer says, mm-hmm. well, you know what, you know, we should be able to, to get this. The, this idea of what you've done in this book, Tanya, and the reason I bring up Josephine is because you've given us some real examples. We have names. We have people. We have families to see the impact. How important was that for you when it comes to the import of this book? Because I think a lot of times I can be honest and say you, we hear these stats all the time, right? Mm-hmm. We hear these numbers. But you've been able to make these real by giving us names, giving us people. How important was that for you after doing the research and deciding how you wanted to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. The stories are everything. And what we see through the stories is just that, I mean, they're both encouraging and discouraging. So what we have are many stories of different kinds of communities in Washington, D.C., where African-Americans were building integrated communities, building all-black communities, building homeowning communities, and then those communities being destroyed. And then we see another another example. So let's just come up into the the 1950s. In the 1950s, I grew up in a neighborhood that when I was growing up was majority black, but again, I didn't know that that neighborhood had also been designed to be majority white, and it was built in the 1930s, and then in the 1950s, black people began moving in, um, with, and, when, and when schools were desegregated in 1954, we saw um, just the exodus of white people from that neighborhood. So I often would just kind of think about the fact that, like my friend's grandmother, you know, I was like, wow, she really bought a home in this neighborhood in like 1957. And just kind of thinking back to 1957, you know, three years after schools were desegregated, not too long after the Jim Crow era, you know, just kind of in this very um, in this very difficult time for African Americans, but also a very hopeful time. And I was like, wow, she bought this nice home, you know, two stories high with four bedrooms with a yard out front and a yard out back. And I was just thinking, like, you just imagine – all the hope she must have had, um, her my friend's grandmother, when she bought that home, when her and her husband bought that home. And then for them to just watch that neighborhood over the course of the next 50 years slowly experience disinvestment. So I think that, for me, the crux of it is that story, just thinking about this, this wave of African Americans who purchased homes in Washington, D.C. in the 1950s, purchased them in these nice, stable, middle-class neighborhoods with great schools and great parks, and just for them to watch their neighborhoods experienced disinvestment and then later heavy policing and um, mass incarceration. That really is the crux of the book, like those paying tribute to those those families, but also just saying, you know, like these families did everything right. You know, they, they really tried, you know, they really followed all the rules and did not get the same payout as white families who did the same thing did. Yeah. Such a such a great point. You you mentioned, of course, there is some optimism here, but there's also I love the call to action. I want to talk about that because when when I was prepping for your segment, Tanya, one of the things I did was I was listening to uh, some of the other interviews that you've done, and so mm-hmm. it was interesting to me to. I mean, you do seem like a person who has not 
who is who is not given up hope, even though we look at these situations and think, you know, we seem to be going in the wrong direction here when it comes to a lot of these these topics. What is it that keeps you optimistic? What keeps you hopeful? I mean, you know, we, when we look at this history of um, – we look at the government taking Reno City, right, and building a park. And, and it's like, okay, well, the government actually has the right to, like, destroy a neighborhood and build a park. Well, the government also – still has the right to do something different, to, to reverse that. So if we're going to argue that it was federal policies that created, you know, all this devastation, then it's clearly the case that the federal government still has that power. So when we think about um, public housing that was built in the 1950s, when public housing was originally built, it was built with the idea that um, there, we, the cities needed workers, there were, these, there were going to be these low-income workers coming into the city, and they would need some help initially, you know, as they kind of got their start with their, with their careers. So the government built housing for them with the idea of, of helping them. We have completely moved away from that idea, but all of the laws, all of the provisions, everything is in place. We could start building public housing tomorrow, right? So what gives me hope is that we could, if, if there were political will, we could start building housing for people tomorrow, right? There's nothing, there's nothing yeah. stopping us, you know, legally from doing that. Um, and I think we just have to get more people to understand, right, that we actually want, we need the government to provide housing for people because cities need workers and workers need housing. Yeah. I, I love the fact, too, in, in coming down to our day, you talk about some of the things that are happening. One of the individuals we l- read about is Nicole Odom. Um, who was uh, had an, an apartment in Berry Farm, and you talk about Berry Farm in the book. And again, I'm, I was not familiar. Of course, people who are familiar more, you know, with DC would be. But I, I love the fact that you talk about what was happening even in 2022, right? When the mm-hmm. the city broke ground on Asbury. Talk to us about that because I think there are again, as some people were put in a situation of finding, you know, a, a place large enough for their families, like Nicole or having to pick up and start anew. Talk to us about that and what it was like for you to see, even the way they looked at that as an opportunity for maybe something better or at least something in the right direction. Yeah, when, when Berry, so Berry Farms is a um, public housing project in southeast Washington, D.C. It was built on land that was appropriated from black families, but despite that, it was originally built as um, public housing for black families, and it's these garden-style apartments with um, with the kind of lawns in between and the crisscross, so it, it kind of created the conditions for uh, for a lot of community to emerge. What was interesting about Berry Farms is that they had four five bedroom apartments because it really was built for families. So kind of recognizing that people have families and families have kids and kids need separate bedrooms, you know, to sleep in in order to have a decent life. So um, probably about 20 years ago, um, the Federal Housing Authority, that you know, they started saying, you know, we're gonna we're gonna need to demolish Berry Farms. You know, this 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 neighborhood has become overridden with crime. The apartments are dilapidated, and the people at Berry Farm were like, no, we want to stay here. You know, we want to live in this community. We we value our community, and they fought really hard to, you know, they did everything they could in their power to organize and to stay in that community. Ultimately, they were unsuccessful, um, and then, and the people that were the the, the final residents had to be relocated um, to other to other places. It just, it, but what came to light was that it was really hard for people with multiple children to find a place, you know, where they could fit their children. So, Nicole Odom is one of the um, 
is a mother, and she's in one of the families. I think she has several children, about five, I think, um, and so it was really hard for her to find a new place, but the city did eventually place her in a new neighborhood. And the thing about that is, I mean, yes, yeah, so now she's in, a, in, an, in another house in another neighborhood, but when you're low income and you're living in a community and you know all your neighbors, um, there's a lot of resources available to you that make it possible for you to survive even though you don't have a lot of money, right? So you can get a ride to the grocery store from someone or someone can go pick up something from the store for you or someone can take, you know, someone, maybe your neighbor can fix a flat tire. So that community aspect of Berry Farms was, you know, really came to the fore as I was reading about it. And it's true that the um, they did make a deal to rehouse all the people, but now they're dispersed across the city, and it's a lot harder for them to get by without that community that they had in the um, when they lived in Berry Farm. Yeah. So I want to ask you, Tonya, because we touched on several, I think, um, touchstones of this book. And, again, we're going to let our audience know how they can get it, and, of course, they connected with you. What was your hope for people who – were outside of D.C., but also, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, though have have seen the way changes have happened, have seen the role that race and, and the, the wealth gap has definitely played a role. What is your hope that this book does for them? So when I, the reason why I titled this book Before Gentrification is because I really want to highlight what happened before um, the city started to be gentrified and and for multiple reasons there's a there part of it is just the value of of what was of what we had in our communities and the extent to which that is being demolished so today for example in washington dc if you were to go uh, recently i went to a restaurant sat down and i asked the owner um i was like how long have y'all been here he's like oh we've been here since 2012 you know we were one of the first and i was just like wow like he he like he just imagines that he built this restaurant you know, and there was nothing here, and that's absolutely not true, right? The street that he that this restaurant is on, you know, in the in the 1990s, it was full of life, right? It was full of culture, full of community, full of people. Um, there were all kinds of venues, theaters, music, and, and and DC has so there was a lot of culture going on there, and so this this just that erasure of it, I find really um, something I really want to fight back against. I really want people to understand. That yes, you know, the, Washington D.C. had a lot of problems in the 1980s and 1990s, and but we also had a lot of culture. There was a lot of people, a lot of community, and we don't want to like throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, we don't want to go back to 1991 when Washington D.C. had the highest um, murder rate in the country. We don't want to go back to 1997 when we had the highest incarceration incarceration rate in the world. But we don't want to just we can't just throw all of that away. Yeah. Well, it's such a great conversation and such a great topic for us to be able to address and, and think about as we're kind of looking at what's happening even in 2023, uh, Tanya. So I really appreciate you being with us to talk about this. Again, everyone, Tanya Maria Golash-Boza has been our guest. The book is Before Gentrification, the Creation of D.C.'s Racial Wealth Gap. It is available through our friends at Amazon.com. It is published by University of California Press. So you can also go to their website at ucpress.edu for more information about it there. Tanya, this is a conversation you also are having online, so how can our audience stay connected with you? Yeah, well, people can find me on um, the app formerly known as Twitter, at T-A-N-Y-A-B-O-Z-A. <laughs> I'm also on Instagram, same handle, and on TikTok as Critical Race Prof. 
right? And we'll make sure that we tag you there. Well, I think we've already tagged you on Twitter. We'll make sure that we tag you on Instagram, and I think I tagged you on LinkedIn as well. Really appreciate this time, Tanya. Thank you so much for the work that goes into a book like this and having conversations like this. I'm looking forward to speaking with you again. Thank you, Cyrus. It was my pleasure. More than welcome. And we thank your audience for tuning in to another great segment of Conversations Live. Until next time, I'm your host, Cyrus Webb, saying as always, enjoy your day, enjoy your life, enjoy your world. Thank you all for choosing Conversations Live. Let us go make today amazing. Take care.